Our first reading for this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our second reading is from Psalm 118, verses 24 through 28. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. And our final gospel reading for today is from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. All of us are now adjusting to this new normal of physical distancing, working from home, fighting with others in the grocery stores to make sure we don't bump into one another. I think maybe many of us are experiencing a sense of loss. I know I am. Loss of regular routines, loss of meaningful connections with physical people, maybe at your workplace. Maybe you miss your workstation. Or maybe some of us miss miss going to work because we can get away from our families. Some of us, though, are perhaps missing and losing the stability and finances. And whatever it is that you are going through right now in this season, we want you to know that WCF hopes to be this community of prayer, but also a community of support. So please don't walk through this alone if you're watching this. And uh, if we can be praying for you and supporting you in tangible ways, do let us know. Let the elders and the deacons know. You can just send a quick message to deacons at wcfchurch.org or call the church office, and we'll find ways to serve and support you in whatever ways we are able to. One area of loss that I personally have begun to experience is this loss of anticipation. It's been hard to know what to expect and what to hope for. If you're like me, we often make plans uh, ahead of us that help us look forward to things. It doesn't always have to be big. It could be something as simple as meeting a good friend for coffee or going out to your favorite restaurant to eat. 
Or maybe it's the loss of uh, seeing new or familiar places with so many places being closed now. Or maybe it's lamenting the loss of a new baseball season that was to begin this week. Or lamenting the loss of a weekend, seeing faces, as Neil mentioned, of your church family. These expectations all seem fleeting now. We're not sure what to expect. We don't know what to plan for. They sing, things seem to change every day, so we can't even make plans. Everyone is feeling that collectively. David Kessler, a, former expert, a foremost expert in grief, who co-wrote The Stages of Grief with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, wrote uh, in, oh, was interviewed in an article in the Harvard Business Review this week. He called this emotion that many of us are experiencing anticipatory grief. It's this grief uh, where we imagine this world ahead of us in our future where we're missing something. In, the, in this case of the examples where many of us are experiencing now, we typically look forward to these tiny rewards for our expectations, but they've disappeared because we can't even ex know what to expect. And without those rewards, it feels like we're living in a constant fog with no end in sight. And that can be really hard. What do we do with our expectations and rewards that we look forward to? It's an ancient part of our human experience to navigate our expectations and the rewards associated with those expectations. Anticipating, expecting, these are something that the Israelites were experienced, for, uh, experienced with for millennia. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, we're going to look at this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in light of Jesus' pronouncement in the final beatitude that we explored last week. There, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And two verses later, Jesus unpacks that, saying, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. How do we live with this joy and gladness that Jesus speaks of in light of his arrival? Well, we're going to walk through this in three steps, as usual. Anticipate a great reward, rejoice in the great reward, and respond to the great reward. Anticipate, rejoice, and respond. Now, the John 12 text that we just heard is one account of the, Palm Sun, of the very first Palm Sunday. This arrival of Jesus takes place immediately after he has done an incredible event. It's unprecedented. This rabbi has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, buried, wrapped in tomb cloths, and Mary, his, Lazarus' sister, Mary, has uh, anointed Jesus' feet with her hair and with this expensive jar of perfume. There was great excitement building amongst the Jews regarding the identity of Jesus. He travels from the town of Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live, to Jerusalem, together with two and a half million other Jews in the Mediterranean region. Why? They're traveling for their annual Passover feast. For millennia, the Jewish people have been nurturing this expectation for their long-awaited deliverer, known as the Messiah, to come. Every year, in their Passover meal, 
they are reenacting and retelling the story of God saving Moses and their ancestors from their Egyptian captors. But the Passover meal was not only a retelling and a remembering, but it was also reminding annually of the, another deliverer that was to come. In fact, our Jew, Jewish sisters and brothers are still awaiting for their Messiah to come. But here, in this scene, the air was charged with excitement and anticipation. There was talk going around the city about a certain rabbi who demonstrated leadership potential, but he wasn't like any other rabbi that they have ever come to know. He would spend time with the vulnerable and the outcast. He, would, he could teach a storm like no other. He could even heal diseases, and as they had just witnessed, some of them had just heard and witnessed, he could even raise the dead. Natural law did not seem to apply to him. Could he be the one? No, not, not that one. For the Jews, he could, could he be the long-awaited uh, and prophesied Messiah? Could he be the one to free the Jews from their, not from Egyptian oppressors, but from the Roman Empire who now occupied their land? The behavior of the crowds reveals their excitement and anticipation. They're waving these palm branches. Kids, if you have them, you can wave them and you're listening along. These palm branches weren't just manual air conditioning for the Middle East heat or fun crafts to keep the kids busy during shut-in at home during a pandemic. Palm branches, by this point, had already become a national, if not a nationalistic, symbol just like some red hats with a certain slogan in our country now, indicate more than just mere support for a certain leader. Palm branches suggested uh, were used at this time uh, for, to signal a, a hope in a messianic liberator to come, someone who would carry the hopes and dreams for a national identity. They would wave their palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means salvation now. Bring it on. For the Jews, Hosanna wasn't just a song. It was a cry for deliverance. It was an anthem of hope, pregnant with expectation for their deliverer to make their nation great, as God promised. Even more, the Jews who have gathered in Jerusalem could not help but recall the words of the prophet Zechariah that we spoke during the call to worship. Words that were embedded in their collective memory. In 9 verse 10, God says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. And this Messiah, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. When this Messiah comes, war and conflict will be gone. Peace will come to the city. And it's not lost on them particularly with the way that Jesus arrives into the city. Because in verse 9, John quotes specifically in this uh, text, he says, See, your kingdom has come to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus enters Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And the pieces are beginning to click in the minds of the Jews. The great reward for freedom, the great reward of emancipation, of finally being recognized as a people may finally be here. But the Apostle John tells us 
that these expectations were misplaced, when, as he hints at in verse 16. We'll come back to that in a moment. But as we look to the story and the person of Jesus here, I wonder if there are any expectations that we have that may have been misplaced. Are we expecting God to do something for us that he is not prepared to do? Perhaps our expectations seem reasonable in our minds. We hope that God will give us the great rewards, maybe not only of heaven, but of happiness and of comfort and of a respectable life. We hope that God will be okay with who we believe ourselves to be. But as we read the story of Jesus' life and ministry, we find that time and time again, he confounds the expectations of those he encounters. He does not play into their expectations. For if he did, who would truly be God? It should be clear to us as we have been journeying through the Beatitudes when Jesus announced that Jesus announced at the beginning of his ministry. We find that our ideas of reward and happiness are not quite how Jesus describes them to be in his kingdom. In the final beatitude that we looked at last week, Jesus expands this pronouncement of blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, their, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are celebrated, those who are congratulated in God's kingdom are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. He continues in verse 12, as we've heard, rejoice and be glad. And in some English translations, it's rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For your persecution that you experience. How do we get there? If we look to Jesus to validate our expectations for a happy and respectable life, we may find ourselves disappointed. In this beatitude, it's the second time that Jesus instructs a specific emotion. In the second beatitude, we are invited to mourn. We're invited to mourn our sin and the sin in the world around us and discover this blessing of doing so. And in this last beatitude, we are invited to practice and cultivate joy because Jesus' followers are be being persecuted for his name. Through the Beatitudes, Jesus' followers are expected to experience these two primary emotions, sorrow and joy, not anger and hostility and frustration, not even happiness, not domination. We discover that the great reward is not happiness or blessing or recognition or even heaven itself. The great reward we discover is Christ himself. And in receiving the great reward that is Jesus, we begin to take on the character and the identity and the mission of Jesus wherever we go. And when our work in this world, following in the footsteps of Jesus, it may provoke negative reactions. We are advocating for this peace that he has come to establish Come, he's come to establish justice and beauty and goodness that reflects God's kingdom. And when, that, when, we are, when there's pushback for those things, we can rejoice that our work has touched a nerve in others. Our work will disarm others because something new, something redeeming, and something freeing is taking place because we trust the work of our master through us. We can mourn the evil 
and brokenness of our world. But we don't have to be overwhelmed by sadness or anger because our hope does not depend in those things disappearing because our hope is in Jesus. Our response isn't tinged with bitterness and self-righteousness and aggression, but a deep joy in Jesus, the great reward who comes to us. When we look at modern-day saints like Mother Teresa or Archbishop Desmond Tutu, sorrow and joy appear to be lifelong companions for them. Yet the spirit of joy exudes from their hearts. Peace activist and Nobel Prize nominee John Deere, spelt D-E-A-R, not John Deere the tractor dude. John Deere was invited to speak at the opening convocation of a Christian college in 2004. And if you recall that period, it was the time when George W. Bush was seeking a second term as president in the middle of the Iraq War. The faculty invited this peace activist priest to their college, and he chose to speak on the Beatitudes. And during his address to the students, John Deere simply wondered aloud if that if Jesus blessed peacemakers, would followers of a peacemaking Jesus sanction this war in Iraq? And you know what happened? Immediately, 500 students got up and walked out of the room. And thousands more began chanting the president's name. John's talk ended immediately there. And as everything concluded, and he's, as he was exiting the convocation, two sophomore girls walked up to him after, the, after and said, You did it! You did it! Everyone hates you! Rejoice and be glad! These girls were affirming what they saw as the Beatitudes being reflected in his speech. And John reflects on that experience, saying, The practice of joy and gladness in the face of persecution of our work for justice and peace means that we are getting ready for resurrection. We are practicing resurrection. We're practicing the joy and gladness we will experience when we meet the risen Christ face to face. John Deere demonstrates this trust and joy in the great reward that is Jesus, the master who is also the peacemaker. And if that joy and trust that we have in Jesus result in persecution, I think he frames it in a very helpful way. We are simply practicing the resurrection until we get to see the great reward face to face in the life to come. How do we get to this place of deep joy in Jesus, the great reward? In the text describing back in, in the Gospel of John, the scene of the triumphal entry, John describes three groups of people who respond to his arrival, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. They all have similar expectations. They're anticipating a political and military leader who will secure a free Israel as their reward. They found themselves welcoming a Messiah based on their own expectations rather than receiving Jesus as he was and as he is. As large and excited, let's look at the crowd, as the crowd was, we find that their excitement about him is very short-lived. Later in the chapter, we're told that they don't, when, they don't, uh, when their anticipated deliverer, Jesus, predicts his own death, they don't get it. 
the same crowd that hails him, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Just a few days later is the same crowd that's shouting for him to be crucified. The crowds did not let the Lord and the king of the universe come and change their expectations. They simply came to Jesus with their own expectations, and when he didn't line up with those expectations, Jesus was cast off as unworthy of their loyalty and worship. The crowds remind us that getting caught up in the excitement of meeting Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that we have seen him as he is meant to be seen, and that we have been changed by this encounter with him. Do we find ourselves identifying with the crowd? Second group here is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, too, didn't allow Jesus to change their expectations. They didn't agree with the Roman occupation, but they believed that the wiser path here was to endure the occupation quietly. Don't rock the boat. And here was Jesus rocking the boat. He was causing too much attention. He was going to threaten this political Stability. So they make a declaration in verse 19, and they say, look at this, the whole world has gone after him. They're exasperated by his influence over their world. And ironically, they are prophetically speaking of Jesus' influence on the world at large. With his arrival, Jesus is not only attracting the attention of Jewish people pilgrimage, uh, pilgriming to Jerusalem from the Mediterranean region, he is entering in as the one master for the whole world, including people of all races, of all colors, and of all faiths who are not living in right relationship with the living God, and they're invited to respond to the arrival of Jesus in faith. The Pharisees respond to this great reward that is Jesus with skepticism, with hatred, and rejection. Jesus does not fit any of their expectations for the Messiah. In fact, the way he lives and serves begins to implicate their own self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They don't like that. But they refuse to allow this instigator to derail their expectations, and so they conspire to get rid of him. But the irony within this irony is, by the end of the chapter, the excitement of the crowds that they were concerned about had dissipated, had turned to unbelief after Jesus predicted his death. The great reward, Jesus, actually dies not to fulfill their expectation but to fulfill the expectation of the living God, the Father. Come to the third group of people, the disciples, whose response is indicated in verse 16. Jesus confounds their expectations, but he do, they don't respond with shallow fickleness like the crowds or hatred for how Jesus' presence implicates them like the Pharisees. At this point, we're told that they are confused but they allow the story to play out and only understand this kind of kingdom that the Messiah Jesus comes to inaugurate after he goes to the cross and rises from the grave. The disciples allow this story to play out fully and they, they allow the story to read them fully. They eventually embrace the great reward that is Jesus and respond in faith, in boldness, in hope, and in joy. 
The disciples allowed Jesus to reshape their ideas of what a great reward is. Their life trajectories change in light of what Jesus has done on the cross and when he rises from the grave. And this kind of freedom that the deliverer offers is not political or national. The kind of freedom that Jesus offers is victory over sin and its curse, that is death. And that the disciples' response here is recorded as confusion is a signal of the truth of this account for some of us who might be skeptical of this Jesus story. All four gospel accounts record this scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And if you were to write an epic heroic saga, you would not write it this way. If Jesus was merely a good teacher or an example for living uh, to draw inspiration from, why would the gospel writers write his story like this? If you wanted to make a claim to messiahship and become a national leader, if you wanted to rouse the hearts of people to believe in a hero, you wouldn't write the story like this, especially if you had a chance to edit it after the fact to convince gullible followers. But that's not what's happening here. You especially would not write about the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' identity when they were to become the leaders of the early church. The disciples' response indicate to us that being inspired by Jesus, like the crowds, or loving his countercultural actions, or being excited over his radical love is nothing if it's not accompanied by belief in who he is and what he has come to do. This week, as we begin Holy Week, we draw into these final days of Lent, culminating on Good Friday, where we remember that this celebrated king died for the sins of the world, for you and for me. And next Sunday, we remember that the grave couldn't keep him there. He rises, and so we celebrate. The great reward has come, and there is hope. Rejoice in the great reward. This great reward is not physical, not just merely physical or material. The great reward is not just a national status or identity. The great reward is a person who happens to be God. Let us respond to the great reward that Jesus was and that Jesus is. He satisfies and reframes all of our expectations in light of his kingdom. May our lives be marked with both sorrow and joy. Sorrow for the reality of sin and its effects in our broken world, but also joy, and especially joy, in who Jesus is, the great reward. He is secure for us in his life, in his death and resurrection. Amen.